So, hi, it's a real honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me, and uh, thank you, thank you, John. And we have had fun together and getting to know each other. Uh, so, um, I wanted to share some, some things about some parallels between the Buddha's journey and our own that might be helpful to you in the tradition that you're in. Um, and uh, for me, who the Buddha was and how his life manifested, it has an enormous amount in terms of my own trajectory. It's, it's been real important to me. And, and like you said, it's been a long time. So <laughs> through all the slings and arrows of stuff, it's been really helpful. Uh, just a tiny bit about me. I was a journalist for more than 30 years, worked at a bunch of newsrooms around the area. So I've kind of a part of me like wants to get to the root of things sort of in my in my genes somewhere. Um, and uh, I don't know, started meditating in 1968 in Raja Yoga uh, tradition, kind of back in the hippie days, and then moved into Buddha Dharma in the early 80s. And it most has sort of been in combination of Tibetan practice and and uh, Theravada practice, Theravada being the called it uh, the way of the elders, which they practice in Southeast Asia. I also sat with MC Mindfulness Community Puget Sound for a few years, way back there somewhere. So, uh, and one thing I'm aware of is in Mahayana traditions, often the actual life of the Buddha isn't there very much. It's pretty easy to just do that practice and not know much about the Buddha. A, a friend of mine who's a nun, I was once in her place, and she literally had a wrapped in shrink wrap copy of what's called the Majjhima Nikaya, the Middle Length Discourses, and said, um, did you ever read that? And he said, no, I haven't actually opened it yet. So I just wanted to share a few things that might be helpful. Okay. And um, and there are, by the way, just to, uh, to, there's this wonderful biography of the Buddha by Thich Nhat Hanh, whose name I forgot. Old Path, White Clouds. Right, it's just exquisite. It's just very creative and has these, it's almost like a novel. It's wonderful. Uh, if you're curious, this one, The Buddha, His Life Retold, is is really good, very sort of down-to-earth, done by a Westerner. My personal favorite is The Life of the Buddha by Bhikkhu Nanamoli. And it's beautiful because it's woven together from the suttas and has a chorus, and it's just amazing how beautiful it is. It's actually given to me by a Sri Lankan monk years ago in, in India. Um, and part of how this has manifested in my life is I've been to India five times and twice to on pilgrimage to places where the Buddha lived and taught. So I've kind of like sucked it into my bones, or maybe it's karma, or I don't know what. Um, the best known of these are Bogaya, where he awakened, Sarnath near Varanasi, where he first taught, Kushinagar, where he died, and Lumbini, where he was born, which I, where I haven't been, but I've been to the other three. And then there's some other secondary ones, and the place most precious to me is Sravasti, which is up in Uttar Pradesh, way up north, 50 kilometers from the nearest railroad station, and where he did 24 rains retreats, which means in the monsoon cycle of the year in India, monsoons and in basically in the summer where it rains, and a few years into the establishment of the monastic order, he said, well, don't walk around don't roam during the rainy period, but stay in one place and practice and don't trample on the crops and don't get wet. So they have these three-month rains retreats. And so he was there for 24 of those, more than any other place where he was. So I've been, uh, man, I, that was, it was like somehow for me drenched with his presence still. And, and also there's hardly anybody there, which is really amazing in India. So you can practice like all day and there's hardly anybody there. But he, everywhere you were, he walked back and forth. It's so amazing. 
So, what I wanted to share, I thought about this for a while, I'm going to share like six aspects of his life, any one of which might resonate with you. So like six different aspects, and, and, I, and I'll be quoting from the suttas here and there. And the suttas, as you may or may not know, are the uh, teachings that he gave, and there's a whole big compilation of them, the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses, oops, and the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses, right there, that's about 3,500 pages, and and you can get them on Kindle. So I have them, and I could like search for keywords and pull it up because I'm through the Kindle app on my computer, which is what I did. So these are like right out of the suttas, anything that I'm quoting. Okay. So the first thing is that he came from privilege, just like us. I mean, here you are in Anacortes, you're all white, and you know, we came from privilege, and so did he. And so I really resonate with that because that was part of, it's like he sort of saw through it, and that, and that goaded him to look deeper, and that may be the case for some of y'all. And he encountered significant resistance on the way. It wasn't easy. A lot of pushback from his family, from people around him who said, what are you doing, dude? You know, be your king, because his dad was a king, small king, small kingdom, but a king nonetheless, and was preparing his son, the Buddha-to-be, to be a king following him. So he was in the splendid three palaces. He had three palaces, the Buddha did, and he describes them in the suttas in great detail about how the silks came from, from Varnasi. I mean, the kind of detail he uses to describe them would only be the detail that somebody was who was on the inside could use, you know? Like, I couldn't write about what it is like to live in Medina because I haven't been there, which is a fancy suburb outside of Seattle. But the Buddha wrote about it. It's really fascinating. He talks about the silks, talks about all the dancers, none of whom were men, you know, that surrounded him as a young, young man. So he had any kind of diversion a person could want, which was the idea of his dad. But eventually he left. And in the middle of the night, he left because this was not what his dad wanted. Snuck out in the middle of the night, traded his robes with the robe with the rags of a mendicant, and became a solitary meditator. So this is important because you know, for here of us in 2019, trying to practice the Dharma, it's hard. Has anybody ever noticed that? You know, you don't get much support outside of this little circle. You're probably like your coworkers are going, what? You know, and if you take a vacation instead of going on, if you take a retreat instead of going on vacation, it's like, what are you doing? You know, so it's hard. And, and But it was hard for the Buddha too. So we can kind of take that into our bones. We're sort of, we're in parallel footsteps in that way. And the Buddha started realizing how fleeting all this is. In one particular episode, we went outside the palace in rapid succession, saw an old person, first time ever he saw that. A sick person, first time ever he saw that. A dead person, whoa, that really hit him. So what does that mean? Because he thought he was in this like kind of pleasant bubble and it turned out that's not how it is. And that drove him to look deeper. So I, I bet all of us, not to mention our own getting older, but we see things that push us, you know, to go deeper. But what the Buddha did was he kept momentum. He did not give up. And that's what's so striking about him. He did not give up. He didn't even quite know. He had an intuition about what was possible because he studied with a few teachers and then quickly got past what they could teach him. But he knew this wasn't it yet. So he, he just kept going. 
so we can all take that in, you know, because it's hard. And, you know, you have guidance from John and guidance from Thich Nhat Hanh, but still, it's hard, and, and can we keep going? And then there's this uh, epic, semi-mythical night of his awakening, when the Buddha was opposed by Mara, which is just sort of, sort of a deity, who knows what exactly, but anyway, symbolizes obstacles. And Mara threw everything at him. It was quite a night. <laughs> everything from his incredibly beautiful undulating daughters trying to entice him, and then on the other side, all kinds of demons with weapons and swords and flames trying to stop him. And the Buddha just did not, would not be deterred. And he even touches the earth. That's why the Buddha, well, we don't have one here, but the Buddha is touching the earth because he says the earth is witnessing what I'm doing. So, you know, it's a, like, it's a lot like that for all of us, that we come up against our aversions, our attractions. We are tempted to get derailed, and we got to get ourselves back on. And so the Buddha, it was not a cakewalk for him. He really had to push up against obstacles. We, we don't have a Mara. And, and also Mara reappears constantly in the suttas, keeps popping up in this way and that way, trying to divert him. And he'll say, I see you, Mara. And Mara, oh, damn it. And wilts <laughs> away again. But it's pretty funny. And Theravada tradition, especially this whole idea of I see you, Mara, is really useful. So the second factor is his relentlessness and his confidence in the possibility of awakening for everybody. And he was really radical in that way because this, this is 2,600 years ago, incredibly male-dominated society. So this everybody included women, which was really radical. I mean, seriously, it was like, they were like property, but no, they can wake up just like me. And people of other castes, which in India was really radical. So he was, he, he, he believed in the possibility of all persons. And he was, and he would relentlessly encourage people. He would say, these are the roots of trees, these empty huts. Meditate, bhikkhus, do not delay, or else you will regret it later. This is our instruction to you. So he just, he said that, that one over and over and over again. And there's some great stories. There's a, a bandit. I can't remember to pronounce this. Angulimala. Mala is, oh, you know, a bunch of bees, and Anguli is fingers. So he was finger mala because he had 99 fingers strung around his neck from all the 99 people he'd killed. And he was feared in the area. And then he takes off after the Buddha. The Buddha's walking in this forest, and people say, don't go there. That's where Angulimala is. And the Buddha said, I think I'll go there. And so he literally is like running after the Buddha to kill him. And the Buddha says, Angulimala, stop. And somehow it got him. What he meant was really stop and look into your heart. And he stopped. And he just realized, why am I doing this? And he became a monk. And he actually achieved awakening. After people stoned him a few times, who were really pissed <laughs> off that he actually was that guy, but he does it. And then there was another, it was a leper. Super, super Buddha. Such a funny word. But anyway, Super Buddha. This leper, you know, and I've been to India and... and I mean, cause, because I don't know if you know leprosy, you don't have any fingers, you don't have any feeling in your sensations, so your fingers get all worn off because you stick them into flames and hit them with rocks and you just sort of smash yourself up and you don't know it. So there's this leper. 
and he heard the Buddha was teaching. And he came basically looking for something to eat, but he had some wisdom, and the Buddha was teaching. And he cast in his mind, and he saw that this leper over there in the back could hear what he had to say. So he really, he gave, he, he expressed, but particularly this person, the path to awakening. And, and Supramada, he got it. Super Buddha got it. And he went off and practiced and awakened. So amazing, this leper, complete outcast. And oh, by the way, right after that, he was gored by a cow and died. So it shows you, you know, we shouldn't mess around. We should go for it when we can. So he just always repeatedly repeated what was possible. Didn't settle for halfway either. It was like he's always pushing for awakening. He wasn't saying, well, if you meditate, you'll feel a little better and everything will be okay, and then you can go. He was like, awaken, awaken, awaken. He says, teaching the Dhamma for the elimination of all standpoints, decisions, obsessions, adherences, and underlying tendencies, for the stilling of all formations, for the relinquishing of all attachments, for the destruction of craving, for dispassion, for cessation, for nibbana. Now, it's a little bit code, but it's talking about don't get stuck anywhere. The absolute freedom of not being stuck anywhere in attachments or aversions. So he's just, he sees that possibility of total freedom. Third, just like us, the Buddha had family problems and he had political problems, which is really useful here in 2019 because, you know, as we know, the politics sucks. And... <laughs> And often our families are difficult. And so he didn't, he didn't exist in this sort of like pristine spiritual imaginary bubble, you know, and everything was cool. And so no wonder he became a Buddha. It's like, no, actually, it was really hard. And he was a Buddha. And not only that, he manifested his compassion in the middle of the difficulty, which is the challenge we all face, right? I mean, what's the old phrase? Don't be a Buddhist, be a Buddha. In your family situations, you know, people are like, just, we got to do it. So his awakened mind was constantly tested and how he responded to those situations has a lot of lessons in it. So at the top of the list, his cousin Devadatta, who was turned into his evil cousin Devadatta, who actively tried to disempower him, actively tried to take the bhikkhus away, bhikkhus being monks away, and tried to kill him several times. I mean, no matter how bad your family is, have you ever had them <laughs> having a maddened elephant attack you? I mean, how's that for a hitman? So he had to deal with that. And he was, it's amazing that he never gets negative about Devadatta. He always, he has this sort of constancy. But he also, as a side note, because of his enormous compassion, when the elephant comes charging, he just sends loving kindness to it, and the elephant goes, oh, and bows down, does not kill him. So how frustrating for Devadatta. <laughs> in addition, his, his, his stepmother wanted to become a nun, which was a wonderful thing, but difficult 2,600 years ago. His cousin Ananda became his attendant, who was wonderful, but, you know, family, because sometimes the family element of that comes up. And he had his son Rahula from when he'd been married before, and he raised him. So he was involved in all of this. There's lots of beautiful things about him teaching. His relationship with Rahula is really beautiful. But it was very much like there was a lot of family, there was a lot of human stuff going on. And also, in his wanderings around northern India, and I 
I'm still working on my history here, but there were at least three different kingships he went through. And because he was from royalty, and be, A, because he was from royalty, and B, because he was amazing, he actually knew all these kings and had contact with them. And sometimes they, well, there was one instance where one, I can't remember which is which, but one king wanted to start a war against the other one. And the Buddha was sort of in the middle of it. And he said, well, by the way, these people you're about to kill, don't they behave with compassion towards their children? And the Buddha and then the king said, well, yeah. And don't they take care of their elders when they get old? And the king said, well, yeah. And he kind of said a few of these things. And the king went, well, okay, okay. I won't kill them. <laughs> so, but he he really had to deal with life, you know. And so, for all of us, we have our own versions of those kind of things. And, and so, it really helps. I think it helps us all see that our practice is is really tangibly useful in life itself. I'm ahead of schedule. It seemed like so much. So, fourth, is the Buddha suffered pain. Just like we do. It wasn't like because he was enlightened, he felt no pain. Actually, he did. And this clarifies the difference between pain and suffering. Because he said, I teach only one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. Or better put, in Pali, which is the language that is used in early Buddhism, dukkha, which means the unsatisfactoriness of things. So he said, I only touch, I only teach suffering and the end of suffering. But he did experience pain, and the way he held it helps us see the difference between pain and suffering because we don't, at least I don't, keep that distinction clear often. So in terms of pain or physical difference, let's start with the fact 2,600 years, years ago he was a monk for 40 years, and he lived solely on what people gave him to eat once a day. So that was it. Just what people gave him once a day. That was it. And in much of the time, like the rest of the monks, he was just wandering around northern India. Back then it was hot, buggy. There were in fact tigers that would eat you. Uh, it was dangerous. Slept outside. You know, it wasn't exactly the hill. But you never hear anywhere in the suttas anything. I never heard any, and I've read a lot of this, anywhere where he actually said, man, that was really a drag. But he did have physical, other kinds of, he had illnesses. He had a bad back. He suffered from headaches. And there was a time when his foot was pierced by a bone splinter due to one of Devadatta's Efforts to kill him, this one involving a large boulder. <laughs> and the sutta says, now on that occasion, the blessed one's foot had been cut by a stone splinter. Severe pains assailed the blessed one. Bodily feelings that were painful, racking, sharp, piercing, harrowing, disagreeable. But the blessed one endured them, mindful and clearly comprehending, without becoming distressed. Then the Blessed One had his outer robe folded in four, and he lay down on his right side in the lion posture with one leg overlapping the other, mindful and clearly comprehending. So, isn't that amazing? You know? And there's something for us to take in. Because, you know, I see some white hairs like mine. We're getting older, things start to fall apart. 
and they hurt and all that. And so we can work on cultivate, cultivate, being mindful and clearly comprehending in the middle of it without becoming distressed, which doesn't mean that pain magically goes away, but it does mean we have a really different relationship with it. And then fifth, that I wanted to share with you all, is that the Buddha expressed compassion in so many ways in the encounters he had with beings. And this is relevant partly because what's unique about Buddha Dharma in whatever tradition you're in is the teachings on emptiness, the teachings on the inherent insubstantiality of that which we would otherwise be attached to. And that's, there's nothing, there's no other tradition that, that sees, that the wisdom sees and cuts through the way Buddha Dharma does and what the Buddha taught in this area. But having said that, the compassion that he expressed and the way he held it is so extraordinary and, and they fit together. You know, compassion and emptiness, they arise from each other, they fit together, they, they inform each other, so you can't understand one without the other. But without this compassion, his wisdom would be dry and it would not respond to the pain or the needs of beings. So it's so beautiful. And, and, and the way his, I think what's so amazing is the, uh, the stories in the suttas, some of them are so out of the box. It's like, wow, you, know, you couldn't make that up. I mean, it must have happened because they're so amazing. And, and the way they come, by the way, is Ananda, his disciple had photographic memory. And so he could remember, you know, some people do. I mean, people still in the Middle East can recite the Quran backwards. I mean, they do. So in that time, people did. And so he, he, A, he had photographic memory, and B, one of his conditions for being his attendant was that the Buddha would tell him anything he'd ever taught. So he taught him stuff from before Ananda showed up, and that's where the suttas come from. So anyway, in one instance, a woman was mourning the death of her son, and she asked the Buddha if he'd perform a miracle and bring the son back to life. And he said, well... You need to bring me a mustard seed from a home that has not suffered this kind of loss. And she said, oh, well, I'll go do that. And she goes through the entire village, knocking on doors. If your home has not experienced loss, could you give me a mustard? And he said, well, gosh, my aunt just died. My grandmother just died. My son, my father is mangled. No mustard seed. She came back, no mustard seed. There was not a home that she found where no loss had not happened. So in this incredibly compassionate way, the Buddha helped her see and helped her under develop compassion for other beings and helped her see that the loss she experienced was the same as others so she could live with it. It's still so sad, of course, you lose your son, but she could live with it. And then she later became the Bhikkhuni Gotami, a, a female nun. And by the way, since I see a, a lot of women here, there's extraordinary, um, the Teriyagata, which is a book of the poems of the nuns of that time, which is just extraordinary. And, and you can find it, you know, you can buy it. I mean, it's, they're so beautiful. And they awakened, a lot of them, including Gotami, because she says, I've gotten past the death of sons. With this, the search for men has ended. I do not sorrow, I do not weep, nor do I fear you, friend. The light everywhere has been destroyed. The mass of darkness has been sundered. Having conquered the army of death, 
I dwell without defiling taints. It's ferocious, but she's expressing this freedom that she found. And the Buddha helped with this compassionate act about the mustard seed. The mass of darkness has been sundered. Doesn't seem like that sometimes, like it's a mass of darkness that we struggle with. So in another instance, the Buddha was visiting the lodgings of monks, kind of going around, I don't know which monastery, there were lots of monasteries, but he came on one monk who was sick with dysentery, all by himself, all covered with excrement, just a mess. And the Buddha engaged with him and found the other monks weren't taking care of him because he wasn't useful anymore. And so he and Ananda, they drew water and they washed the man, they cleaned him up, they put him in a bed, and then the Buddha called all the monks and he said, Bhikkhus, you have neither mother nor father to look after you. If you do not look after each other, who will look after you? Let him who would look after me look after one who is sick. And that became part of the rules of the monastics after that. But isn't that beautiful? He's saying, anyone who would look after me, the Buddha, look after these other sick ones the same way. And in the third instance, it wasn't monks, but a group of boys and a bunch of fish to whom the Buddha extended compassion. So early one morning, he dressed and taking his alms bowl, went to Savati for alms. So that means he was at Sravasti, the place up in Uttar Pradesh, where so many of the suttas happened. And on his way, he encountered a group of boys who were treating a bunch of fish illy. You know, kids do these horrible things to animals. They pull, pull their legs off and stuff. So they're doing bad things to these fish. And he talks with them. He says, boys, are you afraid of pain? Do you dislike pain? Yes, Lord, they, repaired. they replied. We are afraid of pain. We dislike pain. Then the Buddha uttered this stanza. Who does not want to suffer should do no evil deeds openly or in secret. Do evil now, then later, though you may try to flee it, yet surely you will suffer. And the boys sort of went, whoa. And, you know, they stopped doing that to the fish. But isn't that beautiful? He took care of the fish. He had compassion for the fish, and he had compassion for the boys. So he did it without admonishing the boys. He pulled them into their own, their own freedom, their own care for themselves. And he protected the fish. And the sixth thing is the fact that the Buddha died just like us. And in fact, he died in pain just like we may. So it wasn't like he died in this wondrous kind of splendid thing where everything was hunky-dory and there were golden lights. Some of that happened too, golden lights. But he died in pain, just like us. And it's such an interesting uh, sort of transition at the end. He was 80 years old, said his time was up, said his body felt like it was an ox cart held together with leather straps, just kind of falling apart. He knew his time was coming. So in this case, the goldsmith Kunda invited the Buddha to a meal, very traditional people. The Buddha's there with somebody well off would say, oh, you'll come, I will offer you the meal, the one meal a day, and they would all come and he would feed them. But when the Buddha arrived, he said something very unusual, which is that Kunda should only give the hogs mincemeat, whatever that is, to me, the Buddha, and bury the rest of it, because no one else could eat it. So give it only to me and bury the rest of it. And then the Buddha ate it. And then it says, a severe sickness attacked him with a flood, flux of blood accompanied by violent, deadly pains. He bore it without complaint, mindful and fully aware. 
So I don't quite know what the, you know, it's coming. He'd already said he was going to die. And I guess this is the way he did it. I don't quite know what to make of that, but the fact that he bore that pain in that same equanimity and that he was careful that no one else should be poisoned was pretty amazing. But in terms of compassion, he told Ananda to tell Kunda he should feel, feel no remorse that his alms food turned out to be poisoned. Because he thought, oh, this guy might feel bad about poisoning the Buddha after all. He said, it is gain, it is great gain for you, Kunda, that the perfect one finally attained Nibbana after getting his last alms food from you. So he flipped it into a blessing. Isn't that compassionate? Amazing. Did you think that? Right in the middle of dying, by the way. And then there's a case of Subada, who was a wanderer, means like a wandering spiritual seeker. There's like a zillion encounters at that time in India. There's all kinds of people from all kinds of traditions. The Jain, the kind of the Jain tradition, his their teacher happened was literally alive at the same time as the Buddha, although they never met each other, but their followers were crisscrossing and debating all the time. So anyway, this gentleman's Sabuddha, who was a wanderer in Kushinagar, which is where the Buddha died, and he heard that the Buddha was there and was dying, and he realized, oh my God, the Blessed One is here, the Awakened One. If I have any chance of waking up, I should hear from him quick before he dies. That's kind of, you know, rude. <laughs> but he goes to the Buddha, to Ananda, and he says, I would like to talk to the Buddha. And Ananda said, no, 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 he's not. He's sick, he's not well, sorry. Uh, he's Right now he's resting. But the Buddha overhears. <laughs> and he says, no, I want to talk to him. He overrides Ananda. He says, whatever he may ask of me, he will ask it only for the sake of knowledge, not to cause trouble. And what I can tell him, he will quickly understand. That was so amazing about, you know, being enlightened, is he always could tune in on who was there and what their intention was and what their capabilities were. So he instructed Subhadra. I mean, this is right at the end of the suttas, just before he's dying. And by the way, he's still racked with pain. He's and he gave him the going forth to monkhood without the usual four-year probation and very soon after that Subhadra realizes the Buddha's vision becomes an arhat he's the last of the Buddha's disciples to awaken before the Buddha died so that's so amazing in the last moments of his life this, this like kind of pushy person shows up and he welcomes him in and shares the Dharma and he awakens it's so extraordinary and then in his last moments, the Buddha, surrounded by 500 disciples, he asked them if they have any doubts or last questions. And then he asked a second time and a third time, and the bhikkhus were silent. And then he says this beautiful thing, bhikkhus, perhaps you do not ask me because you were in awe of the teachers. Let a friend tell it to a friend. Isn't that beautiful? It kind of opens it up. Just a friend. Relate to me that way, he says. But they were silent. And then he starts entering into the stages of death. And even here, his teaching was so beautiful and compassionate. He says, it is in the nature of all formations to dissolve, attain perfection through diligence. And they died. So he just gave this last lift, this last direction. 